Hello, welcome to my podcast. My name is Kelly J. I am pleased to tell you that Irish women all across the country are beginning to wake up to the numerous assaults on Irish women's rights. I'm talking to the leader of the Countess Didn't Fight For This. Her name is Leisha Ieda de Bruyne. Uh, she gives a great overview of what's happening in Ireland and how you can help fight back. As always, this is a massive global fight and we need to be making connections in order to fight it. Anyway, here she is. Okay, well, Leisha, thank you so much for joining me. Welcome to my podcast. Um, you are the leader of a group called The Countess Didn't Fight For This, which is a great long name. Um, <laughs> who are you and uh, what is The Countess Didn't Fight For This? Where does that all come from? What do you do? Well, we are a voluntary, non-partisan advocacy group, first and foremost. Uh, we're all women from all walks of life, every part of Ireland. We're not Dublin-centric at all. We're you know, people from everywhere and a lot of diaspora as well have kind of joined the cause. And um, I founded the Countess because I felt it was really important to start a conversation in Ireland about issues around trans ideology and gender ideology. And, you know, our long-term goal, our medium to long-term long goal is to amend the Gender Recognition Act in Ireland. But in the, in the first instance, we really just want to shift the discourse and that is happening already. I mean, we are in infancy. We only, um, we're only out in the public domain since September, since the end of September, and already we are seeing a shift in narrative. So we are really on track you know, to achieve our objectives. Um, in terms of the name, it is really a long name. Um, I think in time it will shorten just to the Countess, but the Countess was Countess Markovics, who um, is a figure in Irish history. She uh, is an extraordinary woman. We see her kind of as our patron saint and our, you know, figurehead really. And she's very unifying because she was, um, an English aristocrat, an Anglo-Irish aristocrat, as we say. So they, she would have spent half her time in Ireland, half in England. Um, but so she started off her life like full of extreme privilege. Um, you know, she was an amazing horsewoman. She would have had a governess. She would have spent time in a country estate in Ireland in Lizardell. And then, you know, um, she was born just beside Buckingham Palace. But then she politicised. And so her life is very episodic. And she really transgressed every barrier of race, sex, and class. And by the time 1916 happened, she had, you know, politicized, radicalized. She was a suffragette. She was a socialist. And then she fought in the uprising in 1916. She was a um, commanding officer. And for her part, the um, English um, government uh, sentenced her to death. And that was part, she was pardoned because of her sex to a life imprisonment. But then uh, she was released and re-imprisoned for her plot, um, her part in the German plot. And from her cell in Holloway prison, she fought and won a seat in the new government. And she is the first ever female um, minister of state of any modern democracy. Wow. So, extraordinary woman, yeah. Something to live up to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how inspiring. It's, um, it's quite astounding that uh, she's not talked about more often. Maybe she is in Ireland, but certainly not over here. Well, that's sort of part of her story. And that's also why she resonates so deeply for us, because like a lot of post-conflict uh, or post-revolutionary um, countries, when the dust settles, the men take control and they try to erase the part played by the women. And there were lots and lots of um, women involved in the kind of birth of the Republic in Ireland. But then, you know, the men sort of tried to erase that role and um, legally and just in terms of the narrative. So in 1937, we um, had a constitution that was brought in that actually explicitly put women in the home, you know, really actually forced them out of the public sphere. So um, that's another reason that she resonates because, you know, they tried to rebrand her as a sort of lady philanthropist and she really wasn't, you know, she was really quite a badass really. Wow. Um, so uh, perhaps there couldn't be a more perfect name for your group uh, because we are seeing the new erasure um, of women. So 
what is what made you like was there one thing that made you form this group was there uh, you mentioned the gender recognition act we know that that isn't the only thing impacting um irish women but was it that that motivated you to start or was it just a collective of things um i feel for me that um my own personal sort of journey with this was incremental and there was a few different things that made me stop and think whoa that doesn't really make sense you know i need to think about this more and then i did start a, i sort of started really i delved into it and like many of us you know fell down the rabbit hole came up for air two weeks later and i think once you see you can't unsee you know mm-hmm. once you join all the dots and you realize what's happening and then around the same time i was trying to talk about this stuff in real life all the time i mean all the time and um i remember being back in dublin for um for a weekend because at the time i was living in london and i was back and we had dinner with so many close friends and i brought it up you know i brought up the gender gender recognition act i brought up self id and everyone just looked at the table everyone was afraid. people were afraid to say the wrong thing to say wow. anything and it really hit me i just thought you know this is not right this is not okay people are so cowed by the official narrative you know that to question it at all is to be transphobic so that's kind of what spurred me on i i i started to um very quietly um everyone was so nervous you know tried to find people on twitter who were gender critical mm-hmm. and who were based in ireland and then slowly it it, it just grew from there it is quite astounding how um the playbook of how this has rolled out in most countries. I, I don't know why we knew about it. I don't know what forewarned us in England and Wales. Um, and obviously Scotland is is facing a much bigger threat, but certainly in Ireland, uh, were there any discussions about self-ID before you all knew it was, it had happened? Um, so, people will say, you know, trans rights activists will say, oh, it was in the media and it was discussed and people did know. But what they never, what they always omit is the fact that we did have a consultation period. We did have an advisory group, sort of a round table, you know, and, and the, the, but the, the thing that they don't talk about is the fact that the advisory group recommended the medical model. Right. So that's what all of the work, you know, recommended um, and all the experts. And then at the very last minute, with less than a month to go on the clock in terms of the passage of this bill through the houses, and um, they switched to full self-ID. So they, they did away with all medical gatekeeping. Um, um, I mean, when, I, when you read the, the notes, and it's all there, it's just that you know people don't necessarily find it and look for it and read it, but it is there in the public domain. It's just, I find it stomach churning. There's no mention once of women and of, or of children, it's just, it does talk about stakeholders, but they, it's only from the point of view of trans-identified people. There, it doesn't seem to have occurred to them. Um, now, personally, I do think it came from a place of compassion. You know, I will give everyone that. And I do think that, and I don't, and I, I think that's, it makes sense to me that it would come from that angle, because if you look at the jurisprudence, the case law that birthed self-ID, you know, it is about like the, English case, which is um, Goodwin and UK, they, they, the judgment explicitly talks about assuaging the distress of post-operative transsexuals. So, so that's what the case law was leading towards, and that's what it was about. And were, the, the case, the cases in, in Ireland, we had another t- a test case ourselves called Foy, who was a dentist and a father, and he was post-operative, and he wanted. Um, so both both cases are about the right to privacy and about changing your birth cert in the Irish case and in Goodwin, it was about, it was a very narrow scope. It's literally, you know, the right to marry, which obviously becomes academic once you have gay marriage, marriage equality. And then the other part is privacy, but it's privacy when it pertains to, you know, your name on your national insurance cards or, so at no point does the jurisprudence talk about the right to access female spaces. Yeah. That, that's not what, you know, this was ever about, but I believe that, you know, activists, trans rights activists, the lobby, saw a chink and just pushed. Mm. And what they pushed through that little gap was human rights discourse. You know, it would be a breach of human rights to do genital checks, you know, 
it would be a breach of human rights to force people to do gender assignment surgery. So then, then that's where, when you, you know, go backwards, that's why we are where we are in Ireland, where any man who says he's a woman can fill out an A4 form. None have ever been revoked. They've never been denied. You fill out the form, you make a solemn declaration, you know, whatever that means to live in your preferred gender. And then you, that the, the state recognizes that your gender has changed to your preferred sex, to prefer gender. They conflate gender and sex all the time. It's a really badly written law, but basically the, the key thing for me in our Gender Recognition Act, is it says for all purposes. It explicitly states for all purposes. And so I view that as an access all area pass, mm. regardless of whether or not you're a predator. And in Ireland, you know, I mean, we have two perfect examples of why there is no legal or medical gatekeeping because we do have two rapists locked in with women in the female wing of a, of a jail in Limerick. Yeah. Well, trans activists over here like to say what a utopia Ireland is um, in this post-self-ID. But just for the Irish um, audience who don't know uh, some of the terms or dates that you've used, when did self-ID get pushed through and what was the alternative medical model? So it came into law in 2015 mm -hmm. and the medical model, uh, which was the one pat, you know, um, sort of that, that was looking like it was going to be enacted because all of the um, due diligence, all of the research or the round table, the advisory group, that's, that's what was the recommendation. And um, so that was, so in July, it was sent to the president and signed off. And by that stage, it, it was full self-ID. But in June, it was still a medical model. And a medical model um, in that case, what that meant was you needed to have a statement by your GP who had seen you or an endocrinologist. Right. So there was some sense of, you know, that experts would see you and decide whether you actually, you know, were suitable to be given a gender recognition certificate. Right. It's so peculiar, isn't it, that we even created, you know, if we were a fair and just and um, accepting society, I don't know that we'd need to change someone's birth certificate. I, I don't think that would necessarily be something that, that we would have to do in order for that person to live a peaceful and harm-free life. Yeah, I think as well, you know, with birth certificates, it's like, so in the, in the first, when the Lydia Foy case came first um, in front of the courts in Ireland, um, the judge then, um, McKinchy J, and I love his judgment, you know, he says, um, the, it's in the interest of the state to keep birth records and your birth certificate is not, you know, a continuum document of your travels through life. And it isn't. And he also mm. talks about his concern about the impact on women and children. But unfortunately, by the time that case, the English case then went to Europe, they don't, they barely, I mean, women and children don't really figure, you know, no. so you can just see almost how the activism has shifted the narrative. And, and of course, we are part of Europe. So then our case, that case was then restated to the High Court because it has, it has to align with uh, Goodwin. And, and that's why as well, I don't sort of talk about uh, repealing the Gender Recognition Act. Um, that's one of the main reasons, you know, we can't put the genie back in the bottle. So what we do need to do is have hard lines around um, child safeguarding and females, you know, single sex provision. Mm. I mean, there's a campaign over here that's just started repeal the act. Personally, I, I think, um, I think it could be undone somehow, but it's such a massive amount of work that if we just use the Equality Act that we have over here, it would suffice. So you mentioned children there. Um, what is the state of play for children in Ireland? Are you closer to the United States idea of medicalizing all the children or do you have any um, qualifiers or safeguarding or age or consent? Uh, what's the state of play over there? So in terms of the medical pathway, um, the, the day that the Kira Bell uh, judicial case review judgment came out. Uh, I can speak for myself and, uh, you know, um, our members. It was uh, one of those days that we will never forget. We will never forget that. I think for those of us who are doing this, um, 
because we care, you know, because we want to protect children. I think that this um, this work will be remembered before and after Kira Bell because it was it, it was just globally it was it changed everything. Um, in Ireland, children who were um, gender nonconforming and were presenting, uh, saying they had dysphoria, were being sent to JIDS. Well, they Tavistock people were coming to Ireland, clinicians, and um, then they were being sent over. So, so essentially, our national health service had a contract with the Tavistock, and right. my understanding is that no longer exists because of that ruling. So that's great, you know, it's great. It's kind of sort of um, yeah, it was a huge collective sigh of relief, really. Mm. However, however, it is more nuanced because in Ireland. Um, there is a push. There, in fact, there's more than a push. There is a there is um, part of the legislative program which is already signed off and will be pushed through quite often with no pre-ledge scrutiny. So when these things happen, we have to scramble. But um, there is um, an expand an amendment to, to the Gender Recognition Act, which would expand it to children. So currently in Ireland, at 18 and above, you know you can you can apply to get one. And as I said before, there's no medical or are legal gatekeeping mm. but if you're 16 and 17 you can still apply however you have to go to the courts so there is that bit of gatekeeping yeah so what they're so what the amendment will do is shift that down downwards so 16s and 17 year olds will automatically be able to socially transition they'll be able to change all the documents i mean when i think of myself at 16 with pink streaks in my hair you know i mean I think we all innately know as human beings that we cannot make decisions, lifelong decisions at 16. Can you get a tattoo in Ireland at 16? No, I mean, you can't drink alcohol. I mean, you can't, our age of consent is 17. See, the thing is they conflate it with this idea of agency. You know, we need to center children. And I think at, at the heart is that, of that is a, and I don't know if it's on purpose or not, but there's such a misunderstanding of child safeguarding. Child safeguarding is not letting the child make the decision. That's actually the opposite yeah. of child safeguarding. It's centering them, but it's the adults making the decisions. And I really firmly believe that um, as well as the children in say, for example, a school setting, the trans identified child itself is not served and is not safeguarded if they are you know, affirmed when they yeah. say, oh, I'm, I, I was Alice last week, but now I'm John. Because, because there's no way back for that child. It's too public. It's, you know, yeah. I don't believe it serves them. I believe that is a breach of their safeguarding too. And you yeah. can imagine in Ireland, this is what we're facing, that child, it's not just the school that will affirm them. It is, it's not just, you know, a kind of soft uh, social transition. It is legally, you know, in law and in reality. And we don't even know if there's any way back for them either. You know, I don't, it's not written, certainly isn't written into the legislation. Mm. I interviewed um, Susan Evans, who I'm pleased to sort of uh, list on my my friends as one of my friends. And she talks about that that moment that you affirm a child of the that is the opposite sex social transition. You basically have committed the harm at that point because you've told that child you agree that that child's body is wrong. And I, I just think um, the depth of that harm is is profound to sort of say to a kid yeah you're right all the horrible things you feel about yourself the external bits of your body yeah you're right they are wrong yeah especially when you know um so many are autistic so mm. many have other mental health issues mm. girls especially cutting self-harm i mean to just ignore all that pain and trauma and say yeah 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 let's just let's do this thing um, and I completely agree with you. I find it, um, you know, it's fundamentally wrong for me to encourage dissociation. You know, we are at peace the more we integrate, you know, our bodies and ourselves. And yeah, I, I, I think um, I do see this as, you know, this will be the, the thalidomide scandal. This will, you know, in 10 years time, there will be huge inquiries and yeah I often wonder all the people um you know on the other side will they just have amnesia and pretend they never were you know they never backed it I just don't know you know well I think um mermaids came out with something recently which was totally in opposition to everything they'd said before when they 
sort of said, oh, it might not be right for everybody or we don't always have to affirm or some other nonsense. Um, said they're not born in the wrong body. And, and by the way, we never said that. Yeah, yeah, that was right. That was right. phrase was coined by you. I think that's part of it. We live in a post, post-truth world, sadly, now, don't we, a little bit, so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And if someone, you know, if if the person who speaks is not somebody that you're supposed to like, then, um, of course, everything they utter is an absolute lie. Um, so the, the self-ID, you mentioned people, uh, men, rapists in women's prisons. And um, I said that obviously over here you're seen as some sort of utopia. What other harms um, can you report from the whole model of self-ID? So um, a big one that's really, um, you know, it's kind of flared up massively here for historic reasons, I think more than anything else, is language. So what happened was the HSE, which is our National Health Service, um, quietly dropped the word women from their screening service, cervical screening service for women. Uh, needless to say, they didn't drop the word men from the prostate screening service. And um, they did it, you know, there have been uh, freedom of information requests. And it turns out it was the, it was, it was a suggestion of a moderator. Um, and then the moderator said, oh, they are whatever, happy with it. So, you know, you can really, if you are captured, there's really easy ways Mm. pretending you've got consensus or artificial consensus so that's how they did it and um it was our our very first action actually was back in september outside the headquarters we were just appalled um i think for many women it's quite visceral to be called anyone with a cervix Mm. just it's dehumanizing it's insulting um I feel it's incredibly dangerous in terms of public health. I, I, I know that everyone with a cervix knows they're a woman, but I know that lots of women don't know they have a cervix. And, you know, I'm not sure I did actually until I had babies. I don't know if I really subscribe to the idea that it's only, you know, less educated or more, you know, deprived women or women who don't speak English. I think it's, you know, I, as I said, I think everyone with a cervix knows they're a woman. A woman. So, but for me, it goes deeper than that. Like. The idea is that we are being told that if we use the word women, even in that field, which is a service just for women, that we are kind of creating pain for women who've opted out of womanhood. And I would like to see those, how those women have, you know, how they're behind this. I don't believe it. I don't, I don't buy it. I don't buy it. I don't think trans-identified females are the ones behind this. I believe, you know, I know that the the trans movement globally is led by trans-identified males. They are triggered by any reminder of our biology. They don't want to Mm -hmm. be reminded of it. And and for me, it it goes even deeper again, like the old system only, you know, valued us as women for our fertility, for our ability to carry the young of the species. And in many cultures, that still is the case, you know, our sexual purity and our fertility. That is our, you know, our value. And first wave and second wave feminism, you know, try to give us our full humanity. And what this new woke system, this new woke patriarchy is doing is, is severing us completely as women from our biology. Mm. And, and that, is, that is, I think, quite dangerous for women. Not only, as I said, because it's insulting and dehumanizing and it's, it's, you know, it's not good for public health, but on a deeper level, I think it's dangerous because if anyone can chest feed, if anyone can get pregnant, then if I'm demoted when I come back from maternity leave, that's not discrimination. So it it completely erases structural inequality. It erases sexism. And and, And this is just not me being, you know, um, exaggerating it, it is happening in America there was a woman who came back from maternity leave I mean in America I think it was a number of weeks they don't really have maternity leave but no. um, she was trying to pump and they wouldn't give her a space to pump and they kind of gave her an open office and it went on and on and on and she sued and the judge said men can chest can breastfeed too so yeah this is quite serious stuff you know there's also in in uh 
more woke circles, uh, actual men who call themselves men are taking drugs so they can chest feed too because we are disassociating that sort of birth experience uh, from women because it doesn't suit men, as you rightly say. And I do think you're right as well about um, the impetus to get rid of the word woman uh, is not coming from women who no longer identify as women. I think it is. it definitely excludes uh, men. And we also have the cervix havers. You know, that's, uh, I think in Canada, they also had a page on cervical cancer for trans women with cervixes, because they exist. Yeah, I mean, Tampax calling us people who bleed, Sands calling mothers, grieving mothers, birthing. I think that was the worst. I think that was the absolute worst, because I th- all of these things, like if you go for a smear test, there is nothing you know more about your femaleness and being a woman than when you have to do the, the for most people, quite embarrassing, uncomfortable uh, things that we all have to do as women. I certainly know, even at 46, if the letter comes through about smear tests, I just oh, recoil and think, oh no, it's time. And also, you know, with regard to smear tests, you know, what happens in Ireland when I ask for a female nurse to do my smear and a male with a certificate so that says he's female does the smear? I haven't consented mm. to that. Mm. I mean, this is just a can of worms. You know, I, I might, the thing is, I could, I could very well have a male gynecologist. But I'm consenting to that male gynecologist doing yeah. that, you know, examination. And if I request a female, I'm not consenting to a female who identifies, or sorry, a male who identifies as a female. Mm. You know, there's huge issues here. Sorry? We have the same here. I think it's really, I think the most interesting thing about this, I mean, it's incredibly frightening. It's gaslighting on an, such an enormous scale. But it is the same. It's the same in Ireland. It's the same in Scotland. It's the same in Canada, America, Australia, New Zealand. We are all being. Uh, it's just exactly the same, which makes me really fearful of how powerful the people are that are enforcing women to go through this nonsense. Yes. Um, another issue we're facing in Ireland is um, so you know, like most countries. When you look at our statistics, um, in terms of sex offenders, 98.8% are male, and that would be the same in the UK, I think. But when you look at our female sex offenders, it's doubled. And there, there were two in the last time, you know, the data was collated, there were two. But the reason it's doubled is one of them is a male who identifies as female. So that is just, it's egregious. And it's, you know, it will have long term impact for in terms of criminology and practice and policy. And I, I just feel there's a sense of like, I don't know if you feel like this, but it's like watching something unfold, all the different aspects of it, you know, and maybe there are unintended consequences. I don't know. But certainly women were not at the table when this was brought in in Ireland. You know, we weren't even considered. We weren't even considered. And to your point about the, you know, the power of the lobby, um, you know, it was recently um, written, it was reported that not even Facebook lobby as hard as Tenai in Ireland. You know, you cannot underestimate just how, you know, I think they made 26 official lobby visits to politicians in Ireland in one year wow. recently. So when you look at the law, the, all the legislation that is promised in the um, programme for government, it's, it's template laws, you know. These are birthed by the trans lobby and they just push them out across all the different jurisdictions and hope some of them will stick. And in Ireland, they all seem to be sticking. So, you know, the, we're currently, um, the hate crime legislation is being pushed through, which we fear will stop us having this discussion because gender um, identity is protected. It's one of the, you know, the, the, that's a characteristic. Those people who have um, basically trans identified people will be protected. And the way hate crime legislation works is it's not, there's no mens rea, so I don't need to intend to do, you know, cause that harm by my words or whatever. It's just from the point of view of the person who's affected, if they belong to one of those groups. 
Wow. So it's also a huge giant leap in terms of how laws are made and how, you know, the logic behind them. You know, normally for a crime, there has to be a mens rea. You have to have the thought. Mm. You have to intend to do it. Um, and also we're, we will be um, campaigning against um, anti-conversion therapy, which, you know, it's such a bogus thing. It's not like, you know, we're in the deep south and parents who are born again Christians are trying to... Um, you know, bring the gay children to camps, Christian camps, to have them converted back to straight. I mean, what that's what the, that's what it, it sort of conjures up this sense. But in actual fact, it's stopping therapists um, offering anything other than affirm the affirmative approach. Mm. And that yeah. is the, the actual point of the law. It's not really it's nothing to do with the gay conversion therapy, because I like you say, I think it's incredibly rare and it's so frowned upon that you probably don't even need to make it illegal for it to stop. But um, yeah, yeah the, the gay conversion therapy bill is, is really just about um, being able to trans kids and adults. It's there's just Trojan horses all over the place, aren't there? Yeah, it's quite sneaky. It's kind of sort of bringing something and people go, oh yeah, that sounds, yeah, of course. Yeah, I totally agree with that. But then it's sort of a smokescreen quite often. Mm. The other one we're, we're, um, that will you know, be pushed through in Ireland and we will absolutely fight is what I call the sort of meta one really, which is the one also that um, American people and women are facing, which is the amendment to the Equality Act to give protected, uh, basically make gender identity a protected characteristic. So in Ireland, we don't even have sex as a protected characteristic, we have gender. So already we're kind of weakened already, you know, that isn't the baseline. And so I feel that if they bring in gender identity, it will trump um, gender in our case. Mm. And so our worry would be that, you know, if I'm in a public toilet with my daughter and a man walks in to use it and I, you know, accost him, and ask them to leave that I could be criminalized under this discrimination, under discrimination law. So that's, I think that's a huge one. I don't think people are really aware of it, but that's, yeah. I think that one is the meta one. Uh, and I'm assuming your schools are captured um, as an institution, as well as your police and your judiciary and everybody that's supposed mm -hmm. to protect you or? It's it not, it's a bit more nuanced here. So there is one school movement, um, Educate Together, which would appear to be, you know, um, massively signed up to the ideology. Um, with sort of state school, uh, the, you know, the sort of more normal state schools, um, there is a move to rewrite RSE to include, you know, gender identity, gender mm. ideology. So telling children, you know, if boys like to um, dress up as fairies, um, you know, or princesses, then they're possibly in the wrong gender. They're probably, right. you know, or if girls want, you know, so the whole um, G.I. Joe Barbie spectrum, you know, that's what I think as well is so important to get across. Like this stuff, this this ideology, trans activism, trans ideology is not progressive. Yeah. It may say it is, and people in Ireland may believe it is, but you just scratch the surface. Look at the values that underpin it. It is deeply homophobic. It is trans and gay children and making, you know, making them straight. I mean, for the most part, these children are butch lesbians or effeminate gay boys. Mm. Just leave them, let them develop, support them. You know, um, the misogyny is uh, extraordinary as well, I think. So I think, yeah, I think I honestly believe that for the, uh, for the large part, people think it's progressive, but it really yeah. is. Do you think that's why it's taken off in Ireland? Because actually people think it's it's a nice thing to do. It's a progressive thing to do. Um, is, is that why you think it's taken off? Or do you think there's any impact from your sort of ultra conservative um, element? Um, it's a really good question. I think that, yeah, I do. I think, I think you're right. I think people feel, oh, in the dark old days, we were, you know, ultra conservative, the most Catholic country in Europe. And now this is the brave new world, mm. you know, and it's full of rainbows and unicorns. And there's, you know, the thing is also, it's so easy, you know, for people with no skin in the game, why not? Of course, sign up to it, you know? And it's very much framed as, you know, in the public imagination and in the official narrative, 
this is about being kind to a tiny percentage of deeply troubled, deeply vulnerable people. And it's so important to try to get across that it isn't about a tiny handful of post-operative transsexuals, because that's what people believe this is. This is about the ability of any man who says he is or fancies it to fill out a form and become a woman for all purposes. And that means the end of single sex provision. You know, it means that, it means that your daughter will be playing football with a man, a male body on her girls football team. Mm. It's really interesting that self ID went through before women um, had the uh, had reproductive rights. It's um, that just tells me that there is a there is an overtly sexist foundation there because those two things. If you're talking progressive, then surely it would be it would be a faster win to get to women being able to have um, autonomy over their own bodies than men to be able to. Im- invade women's space and call themselves women yeah i feel like it's so telling you know that timeline and similarly actually in argentina i mean in argentina they just got productive um rights last week and before that they had a, a man um playing on their ladies soccer team you know I, I totally agree with you i think um what underpins it like so i i think i have a theory as well that if you do not believe that women have full humanity, then you know what? This ideology fits you like a glove because Mm. that's why it just fits like velvet if that's what you feel. Now, you may feel that on on an unconscious level. It may be deeply internalized. But when people say to me, you know, oh, it's very complex. I just feel like (laughs) saying it's not not really complex. It's, It's complex if you fundamentally believe that the feelings of men and keeping men happy is more important than the lives of women, the safety and dignity of women. For sure, it's really complex then. And you know, and we, and you see cognitive dissonance and people like, I, I really was, I think, naive. I really believe that once we got the word out and everyone knew that the, that the people in um, Limerick Women's Prison were fully intact males, first and foremost, that one of them was in the middle of a trial, a criminal trial, um, for rape, for sexual abuse, sexual assault, um, you know, and, and he, he still got the certificate in the middle of live proceedings, criminal proceedings, they would go, oh no, that's, you know, no way, like, or um, in the case of the other person. Now, it's important to note there are others, there are others, but they're the only two that the media have kind of become aware of, because it's very controlled. I mean, there's a gagging order around the second one, so I have to be very careful, but they're a very deeply disturbed young person, and they tore the eyelid off their social worker, um, they were turned down by the Tavistock for not having dysphoria. So and, um, they're clearly a clear and present danger to the women in there. And, and so I really believed once people would hear this, they would go, oh, no, no, no. I mean, it's just so blatantly wrong. But some people still, you know, and I think that's because of the messaging and the internalized um, conditioning, you know, particularly women, you know, we've been conditioned into, you um, Sort of wanting to please men, wanting mm. to be kind, wanting to be nice, and it's very powerful. Don't you find? I find when I sort of point out that these men are in women's prisons or allowed to be in women's spaces, that people often use the argument: "Well, women can be violent as well. Um, a person is violent. It's not necessarily a man." And I'm like, "Well, the statistics say it is more likely to be a man," and so. You can't, you know, all of these things are sort of seemingly being really well erased in the conscious mind that actually men are more dangerous. And we know that because even the people that say about a man in a woman's prison, we know that if they asked for a babysitting service and a man turned up, they'd be less inclined to leave their children. Yeah, well, that's, I think, uh, part of that as well, I think is unfortunately those women in jail are dehumanized by the culture. Yeah. So there is a sense of that will never happen to me. I don't relate to that. That's nothing to do with my life. But of course I will protect my own precious children and I and, and people naturally, you know, yeah, you're absolutely right. They're not going to necessarily want a male childminder, nanny, babysitter. But so there is a disconnect there. Um yeah, I mean it's it's sad the, when you, when you we've done some work, you know, looking into uh, the lives of women in prison in Ireland, and there's so many startling things. But 
the number of women incarcerated in Ireland has jumped tenfold in 10 years. And to your point of, you know, there's this idea that male violence doesn't exist anymore, you know, there's also a sense of a kind of hardening towards women and mothers, I feel, in the culture. I mean, because 80% of those women in jail are mothers and, and right. the vast majority have three or four children. And they are kind of the dispossessed, you know, they're there for not paying fines or, you know, um, like they're not violent criminals for the most part. And they tend to do short sentences, but they go back in, they go out, they go in, they go out, they go in, you know, they're, because their lives sort of fall apart once they're inside, you know. So a man in jail, so this is what some of the research you know, said this um, prison expert said, you know, when a man's in jail, if he wants a new pair of Nikes, they come on the next visit. You know, there's a support network and his children are being looked after and family life continues without him. You know, it's waiting for him when he's on release, whereas a woman goes into jail, a mother, her family life falls apart. Her children are put into care, you know, her bonds with her children. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's the thing to try and get across the juxtaposition of um, violent criminals with the most vulnerable women in society. And yeah. even if, you know, it doesn't need to be that one of them gets raped as, as the judicial case review in the UK that will imminently be heard, um, you know, shows that that woman was raped by um, a trans-identified male in prison. But even without that happening, I mean, I just think it's it's psychological torture for those women. The most Absolutely. part, they're largely victims of male violence, of child sexual abuse, you know, so that leads neatly on to um, the recent, uh, was it a case review or was it a whole sort of investigation into the mother and babies that continued into both of our lifetimes, which is just unbelievable? So, yeah, the mother and baby commission report was finally published after many, many, many delays. And even though we would be aware of this issue, this scandal, um, this was the first time the testimony of all the survivors was collated and sort of expressed through this report. Um, so it was delayed and sadly it was leaked to the press before the survivors read it. It was sent to the survivors with a Zoom link. I mean, many of them are illiterate because they were incarcerated. Right. Um, there just seems to be a sort of callousness around it. To me, I think it is um, very much a whitewash. Um, and by that, that sounds, you know, very um, extravagant claim, but, but by that I mean, you know, some inquiries can limit and limit the scope, limit the inquiry to such an extent that actually it's a bit of a smokescreen. It appears to be in good faith and very legal and proper, but in fact, it's there to really protect the institutions involved. Yeah. Like Bloody Sunday, like Grenfell, like, you know, Hillsborough. So, so it's, it's almost a mechanism. You know, and, 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 you know, why wouldn't the state try and protect itself? The same two parties that oversaw and funded the system are still in power in Ireland. Mm. We would be naive if we thought, you know, they wouldn't try and damage, uh, limit the damage and want to sort of make it go away. Um, and our uh, Minister for Children, the current one, the common one, I do believe that the previous one really did her best. And you know, she spoke to the Pope when he visited and she asked about reparations from the orders. Um, she spoke with survivors a lot. She tried to center them. But the current uh, minister tried to seal the files. So this has sort of not been reported anymore. But just before Christmas, he tried to push through legislation in only nine sitting days to bury the, the files for 50 years, which by which case the survivors would be dead. I just find that so breathlessly kind of breathtakingly uh, callous because yeah people are still trying to find trace their birth mothers and birth mothers are still trying to trace their birth children and i know it's complex and some survivors don't want to be traced i know it is a very nuanced complex area but to rush through that legislation so there was absolute outcry um however now with the new with the report what is being said is oh we're, you know, we will try to enact legislation by the end of the year that enables more efficient tracing because what's happening is survivors are trying to find their birth cert. They're doing freedom of information requests and they're not getting the information they need. It's really, really difficult. So, um, I mean, I feel like the government with how they've dealt with this have been kind of at worst defensive and at best, you know, incompetent. It just doesn't fill you with, with confidence. And, and, you know, 
also the framing it's like this was a chapter this was a chapter in our past or you know it was 80 out of 100 years of our you know the the our statehood as an independent country for the 100 years that you know this country exists as an independent country 80 of those years this system was in place um now the figures are that 56,000 women had 57,000 children and 9,000 babies died. And they're the babies in the mass graves, which are still there. They're not exhumed. However, is that's just really a snapshot because they only looked at um, a number of homes, 14 mother and baby homes, and they only looked right. at a sample, a representative sample of the county homes. Right. And the, um, the UN Convention on the Elimination of Discrimination to Women have been very critical of that limiting of the scope yeah. and the inquiry. You know, it's to me, it's something so serious, so grave, so egregious, such a stain on our kind of collective consciousness. Why would you not want to, well, firstly, find all the mass graves, you know, like the UN have the assets and the capability to do that. So you have to wonder, is it because there's no political will to actually find all those mass graves? Yes. I think is a short yeah. answer. It's um, interesting, isn't it? Because if this was one case, so if you came across, if one police force came across one case of a girl being sent away and being abused and her baby being taken from her, the malnourishment of that child or just neglect or whatever led to that child's death, um, and it was a cold case, then somebody would fight tooth and nail to solve it, to find out what happened. But it happened to so many women, it's almost like, um, I don't know, it's, it's like it hasn't really happened to individual women and there aren't individual stories and there aren't individual sort of families grieving. Um, it's, it's a peculiar thing when you get to such large numbers. Yeah, and, um, you know, systemic. And I think, this, I think there's layers and layers of shame and trauma for the survivors, for the adoptees. You know, it's very complex. Um, you know, one thing that really struck me and, you know, they don't, they, they question if adoptions were forced um, in the commission report. And you think, how can a, a girl, a woman in that circumstance sign that paper? That's, that, you know, it was done under duress. You know, um, they also call the houses refuges you know, I, I just, yeah, and I feel as well, um, you know, families handed over those those women, they handed them over, you know, um, and when they tried to escape, if they did, they were rounded up like cattle, you know, and, and brought back. Um, I, I think, as you said, if it was one case, there'd be outcry, but it's so complex and, you know, it was a triad, really, of state, society and church. And it wouldn't have worked if there wasn't full acquiescence from each one. But I mean, I certainly feel that it suited the state. It, it, they didn't want to build a full welfare state. They didn't want to build a system of social care. They outsourced it to, to the religious orders because it was cheaper and it just made the problem go away as they saw it in their eyes. Mm. Um, so in a way, we're all complicit. And that's why it's such a it's such an important thing to get right, I think, rather than kind of minimize in any way. I think I think it's really important. What happened to the um, boys or the men who were fathers of those uh, thousands upon thousands of babies and children? Did it, was, there, was there anything sort of societal or cultural that made them um, equally as uh, shameful as women or was it was it just all the women's fault? I mean, short answer is no. I mean, they got away scot-free. I mean, there are some, there are some um, outlier, you know, heartbreaking stories of fathers marrying the woman and the baby was already taken. It was too late. So um, I think that did happen. Mm. Um, there was even stories of people marrying and having a family, but never been able to get back the child that was adopted because, because it was an industry. That's the thing. It was an industry. Even if you just go by the records, which we have, um, about a baby a day was being sold and they were being sold they were being sold like puppies they were advertised in local newspapers you know they were given um, American couples largely they were because I guess they would have had the money and they were seen as good Catholic 
couple of families and they were they they spent like a lot of money back then three thousand pounds per child um headage it was called but the, but the men yeah they got away scot-free and i mean someone said something very interesting um that when you look at the rates of marriage and the ages of marriage across europe irish men you know this was happening they were getting these women pregnant but not marrying them they were just refusing to marry marry them so it's almost like they were just disposable you know they were othered it's bizarre, isn't it? So 22 years, I think um, I read that the 1998 was the closure of one of the last homes. The last so, laundry, yeah. Right, so, sorry, last laundry. Yeah. Mustn't call them homes, that does sort of conjure up um, something completely different. Uh, so within 22 years, uh, your country has gone from thoroughly recognising what a woman is and how she should, and how, the, the weight of shame that she should feel when her female body um, is impregnated, but uh, within 22 years, uh, Ireland doesn't seem to know what a woman is. And um, even the head of in Amnesty International called the women in those laundries people. It's just, yeah. it's so scandalous. Yeah, I feel like we've kind of segued from one theocracy to the next. You know, we were ruled by priests and they really controlled our thoughts, our language, our lives, our social lives, our sex lives, everything, mm. our laws. You know, they, they, they wrote that constitution that firmly put women as second-class citizens, the 1937 constitution. It was literally dispatched every night. So there was the official side, which is the Oireachtas Drafting Committee, and it was dispatched every night to, you know, His Holiness, MacDade, who took a red margarine, like this bit, don't like this bit. So, so it's, it, we're back to the situation again, where who's making our laws? Who's making our laws and for who? And, and yet again, we have the new priests, you know, controlling our language, our laws, writing our laws. Okay, so we know that we are in a despairing situation in Ireland where you are going to watch your rights um, be taken from you but there is hope because Irish women have groups like yourself yeah. uh, so I'm assuming that there are many Irish men and women uh, actually becoming aware of what's happening and needing to know the the small things the medium-sized things and the very big things they can do to fight against it. So if we start with somebody who is too embarrassed to be out, too fearful of their jobs, what are the sort of the behind the scenes things that they can do? Um, I always think it's really, um, it seems like a small thing, but it's quite powerful to discuss this in real life. Mm. I'm not saying, you know, take a risk and put something on Facebook and, but, you know, just talk to people in your daily life, explain, you know, the reality of what's happening. And um, people are interested in different angles. You know, I mean, we haven't even talked about sport, but I think sport is something that people all can just see the insanity <laughs> of, of male bodies playing alongside female bodies. Um, I think there's levels of this. I, th I think um, Twitter is a good kind of starting jumping point because mm. it's where the conversation is however however i would say if you've got a free half hour don't go on twitter write an email because that is what counts that's where people take notice actually they they do you know they kind of ignore noise the noise on twitter but they won't ignore a letter from a constituent that says i am your constituent and i am deeply concerned to learn you know, and you can just choose. I mean, there's a lot to choose from. <laughs> choose an issue or choose a, a, a bill. And, yeah. a bill. Um, and in terms of our group, you know, we are growing every day. We've got a mailing list now uh, where you get a newsletter. You get, you know, the digest, the weekly digest, really, of campaigns, actions, articles. We've got a really good kind of uh, stable of Irish female writers writing really good, good quality articles and first mm -hmm. person pieces for us on our website. We will be hosting webinars. We've got something planned for International Women's Day. Um, I am kind of quietly optimistic about this. I feel like we're watching the Overton window shift in real time in Ireland. You know, in the short space that we've been out, 
and doing this work, you know, there is a shift. There's, you know, it, it went from nothing to see here. We are the golden child of the trans movement globally, you know, to, oh, there are groups forming. Yeah. Not really about why or any analysis, you know, what the issues were. And that's now shifted to, oh, you know, recently, so we were kind of called TERFs and TAMs and we're always called British. Like there's this awful trope. <laughs> <laughs> and the most recent one, I thought that's a really, oh, we're doing quite well. It was um, some left-wing feminists, you know, are oh, raising concerns. Okay. So, and that was in one of the mainstream papers. I thought that's good. We're being elevated all the time to, you know, being um, palatable and acceptable. And therefore our arguments are palatable and acceptable. And that's what I mean by the overture window. You know, what is, what is allowed to be discussed in the public sphere is shifting. Mm. You know, they're publishing our letters in the papers. Like, I think, you know, yeah, I, I am very optimistic. I really am. I think Ireland is a cohesive country. You know, it's very kind of still community-based. And I, I do believe this has happened from a, from a really genuinely believe it's, co it's come through from a place of compassion, but we just need to shift the, the kind of myopic focus away from not only compassion for the trans-identified person and their life and their struggles, which of course we all absolutely have empathy for, but to widen the lens to, oh, the children in that school who maybe don't want to change in front of a boy in a boy's body yeah. says he's a girl. Or, you know, they're just the women and children, basically. Just yeah. widen the lens. And I think that is happening. I really believe it's happening. Well, it certainly seems that um, for quite some time, everybody was getting away with changing uh, all of our country's uh, laws through the back door with little micro changes in language. Um, I did want to ask, um, with the Irish language, is do, do they still use sex and biological sex in laws or is, is there also an Irish language word for gender? Oh, gosh. I don't know, but I need to find out. I do need to find out because um, obviously it's our first um, language. It's the language of state. However, um, I tried to convert my name to the Irish language version recently. And I just sort of fell down this hole of, oh, you have to prove you've used it officially for two years. And I said, well, I can't use it officially because it's not my passport. No. But, but, you know, maybe like your bank, you've, you've used it with your bank or revenue. And I was like, yeah, but I couldn't just start using it. I have to have it on my passport. So I was like, this is a bit chicken and egg. So I, I kept saying, it should be more easy. It should be simpler when it's actually our state language. Like every single official document and law is translated into Irish. So I'm just reverting to that language. I think that's quite perfect with what you want to achieve, that it's more difficult to get your name officially recognised in Irish than it is to change from a woman to a man legally that's in that's that's both insane but it's these sorts of things that actually make the whole thing easier to fight because you'll probably have people who really are very loyal to being Irish very patriotic um that will find that really quite a staggering and um that's a lovely little bit of uh um what's the word hypocritical law and there is such a resurgence in the Irish language in Ireland um did you know that the Oscars have um accepted as a foreign film uh, a film Oscarilla so it's in Irish with subtitles wow yeah. about the famine yeah it's called Aracht well that's great well maybe you can ride the nationalist sort of oh that's such a terrible word to use but it's it doesn't have to be a terrible word, but maybe you could ride that particular wave because, um, you know, obviously Irish people want to get back to how they how they feel and what they actually are. And so it's it might be perfect for you. Well, it's funny what we feel and what we actually are. Like I was talking about the women who, you know, were at the helm during the 1916 uprising. But even historically, we were quite a matriarchal society, you know, women had private property rights, land rights, you know, I mean, historically pre, um, pre-colonization. So yeah, it's interesting on, on picking, you know, Christianity and yeah, like there is, there is a quite part Irish women, mm. you know, there really is, you know, you don't cross them. <laughs> My mother's a Foley. 
She, oh, her really? father, yeah, her father was from Cork, and he he um came over in I think 1918 or something on a cattle ship, wow, away and an orphan. So um yeah, and my husband's family are also um Irish, but none of us have got the lovely blue eyes. Oh, <laughs> yeah, we're so intertwined as two countries, you know. Well, I'm going to thank you very much for joining me. And uh, I think Irish women and girls are lucky to have you. And we will have you back on the podcast in about three or four weeks. We'll make sure everybody knows what that is. And we will do a Q&A. So anybody struggling um, in Ireland to move forward with this and fight back and, and even just want to connect with people in the chat... Uh, I think that would be a really good thing to do. But uh, for now, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that. I certainly did. Uh, thank you again to Leisha for joining me. Uh, I think we know now that this is a global attack on women's rights, on the rights of biological females uh, right across the board, uh, from infancy through to uh, old age. And there's only one way we can stop it, and that is working together. And working together, unfortunately, people cost money. And so there are many ways to support this channel. There's PayPal, Patreon, and joining my membership on Standing for Women. And there are other much simpler, a lot cheaper ways, and that is to like, share, and subscribe. It's really not very much to ask. See you next time. Bye. <laughs>